think what we're seeing now is that there are a lot of people who are you know, don't believe in democracy necessarily and want to purge the system as it exists now and really start over. Um, and I think that's kind of the root of the insurrection that we saw on January 6th. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Hate is on the rise. Last week, the Department of Homeland Security issued a rare bulletin warning of the threat from homegrown extremists, anti-government militias, far-right hate groups, and white supremacists. This week, the Southern Poverty Law Center released its annual report, The Year in Hate and Extremism. The report documents the existence of 838 hate groups around the country, including 30 hate groups in New England. Cassie Miller is a senior research analyst with the Southern Poverty Law Center. She joins us to discuss the state of hate. Cassie Miller, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. The SPLC just released its annual uh, report on the year in hate in extremism. Let's start right there. Um, What has changed in the landscape of hate groups and what has stayed the same? What's notable? Well, it might first be useful for me to just define a hate group. Um, We define them as an organization that based on their official statements or principles, um, the statements of its leaders or its activities has beliefs or practices that attack or malign an entire group of people. Um, And that's typically for their immutable characteristics. Um, So in 2020, we tracked 838 hate groups across the country. Um, And this is actually a slight decline from the year before. We saw about an 11% decrease. Um, But really, that doesn't mean that the threat has declined or dissipated in any way. Um, You know, there are still really violent threats um, being made by the far right. And I think it's really just the organizational structure of the movement that's changed, not the threat level. Um, you know, what we're seeing is that the movement is simply more diffuse than it was in the past. So I think some people are probably surprised. You know, we see this uh, visible upsurge in violence, in militarism, but you're saying the number of groups has declined. So explain how hate groups are morphing in this environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is sort of surprising on its face, especially after watching the events of 2020, when we've seen a lot of violent plots against lawmakers, we've seen a really conspicuous presence of far-right actors at reopen protests, things like that. Um, But the movement has really changed that they organized away from traditionally structured hate groups with, you know, leadership, um, perhaps initiation rituals, and towards kind of a more amorphous, diffuse structure. Um, And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, One is that being a member of a hate group creates a lot of liabilities. Um, You know, it is easier for law enforcement or journalists or anti-fascists to infiltrate, um, and they can leak internal communications, and that can be not only embarrassing for a group, but actually open them up to criminal charges. Um, And this year we saw a number of high profile arrests of members of hate groups. Um, And so that creates fear and paranoia that kind of dissuades people from joining groups. Um, But I think more than anything else, really people are kind of identifying with broad extremist communities that are mostly focused online rather than with traditional groups. 
Um, so people can go on to places like Facebook and join a number of extremist groups there or on platforms like Telegram and join channels there where they can participate in this extremist culture and feel like they're part of an in-group um, and you know, still be persuaded to act on behalf of this movement, but not necessarily align themselves you know, with a group that has a name and a specific organizational structure. So one of the things I found interesting uh, reading your new annual report is that traditional old line hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan are in steep decline. Um, you note in there that the number of chapters have gone from uh, in the 40s now down to in the 20s. Um, so who are the new big players uh, in the far right hate groups? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of people are no longer joining groups like the Klan. That's really, you know, a, a toxic association at this point. And their style. Why? why yeah, why is it toxic? Uh, well, I mean, the name, first of all, I think everyone, everyone knows what the Klan is, right? There's no getting around what they stand for. Um, they have a deep and well-known history in this country um, for racism and, you know, widespread violence. Um, a lot of other hate groups, you know, have some degree of plausible deniability, I think. And so if we look at what groups people are joining, it's those that aren't maybe as overtly racist as a group like the Klan, um, you know, that are using kind of PR techniques to clean up their image um, and really trying to, you know, appeal to a broad swath of people. Um, you know, so we have some people who are kind of acting like influencers, you know, the kind of people that uh, you might watch on YouTube um, or, you know, who have big audiences on Twitter. Um, those same kinds of people exist within the far right and are trying to build personal brands for themselves to lure people into the movement. Um, and we've seen some of them emerge over the past year. Um, someone who comes to mind is Nick Fuentes. Um, and he is a young white nationalist who got his start on YouTube um, and built up an audience there and has since shifted to other platforms. He got put, uh, kicked off of YouTube, but now he, you know, then went on to something called DLive where he was able to monetize his broadcasts and he's since been pushed off of there, but he still has this large audience and is really trying to take the frustration with the Republican Party um, and wield it to build kind of a, a new movement on the right um, to rebrand and build what he often calls the dissident right, um, which is simply, you know, white nationalism rebranded, much like when we saw this attempted rebrand with the alt-right. It's the same idea. Hmm. For people who are new to these terms, can you kind of tease apart white nationalism uh, and just explain some of the, the key language of hate groups. So yeah, the white nationalist movement is made up of people who their predominant goal is to build a white ethno state. Um, you know, and sometimes they're really forthcoming with the means with which they would like to see that done and other times they're not. Um, but, you know, that is something that necessarily involves violence. Um, and at its core, you know, the hate movement is, is about violence. Um, you know, whether it's 
deporting people forcefully or, um, you know, creating a civil war or a race war. Um, you know, these are also things that they talk about pretty regularly. So in the last year, uh, the U.S. government has repeatedly, you know, its own intelligence agencies identified far-right uh, militarism, far-right violence as one of the key threats to uh, domestic peace. But the Trump administration uh, ordered the FBI to focus on left violence. And uh, as we all know, Trump would talk often about Antifa. Can you explain the reality of left violence and put it in context? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what we've seen is really kind of a rhetorical trick um, on the part of the far right to try and ignore the violence of the far right and pin it entirely on the left. Um, and this is something that's developed over the past several years. You know, we've been watching groups like the Proud Boys and other kind of street militants uh, go into progressive cities, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, to places like Portland, um, and try to antagonize leftists and anti-fascists into you know, engaging in violence against them and then using this as, as propaganda for their own groups. But this was also a way for them to say, you know, it's actually the left that's violent, even though they were the ones who were going in and instigating everything in the first place. Um, but we've watched this narrative that was once sort of on the fringes eventually get adopted by really the whole of the right and of Trump himself um, and saying that, no, it's actually the left that is inherently violent while completely ignoring the fact that the vast majority of political violence in this country is being committed by the far right. Um, you know, and unfortunately it took years for Trump's own administration, the DHS and FBI to finally admit to that. Um, but we know that that is the reality of the situation and, and the attempts to say that anti-fascists, you know, which is a community-based movement that utilizes a number of tactics to oppose fascism, um, to say that, that they are domestic terrorists is a way of really delegitimating what is you know, real political activism um, and, and trying to kind of um, you know, push back against actual political organizing. Um, if you're just joining us, our guest is Cassie Miller. She is a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, Cassie, you began your work at uh, SPLC at the beginning of the Trump presidency. Your work there spans the duration now of the Trump presidency. Can you talk about the role that Donald Trump has played in far-right militarism and, and hate groups? Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's hard to kind of summarize, I think, the, the role that Trump played within the far-right in this country over the last four years. Um, you know, he emboldened the movement um, in an incredibly historic way. Um, and we saw the numbers of hate groups really climb throughout his presidency and, and reach a record level um, in 2018 of 1,020 active hate groups. Um, and what we saw really at the beginning of his presidency was that people on the far right really thought that they had found a way to achieve mainstream political power. Um, we saw them kind of organizing under the banner of the alt-right 
uh, and believing that, that Trump was the person who was going to bring their agenda into mainstream politics. Um, and so what they did was try to organize a mass movement and, and build a mass base of support. Um, and that's really what characterized, I think, the beginning of his administration. Um, but that gave way to some frustration, um, you know, that even Trump's uh, policies like separating children from their families, um, some of these really grotesque, horrible immigration policies that we saw that were shaped by people like Stephen Miller, weren't really enough to satisfy the far right. Um, you know, they were also suffering because of the backlash to Charlottesville. Um, many of them got entangled in very long lawsuits. Um, and what we saw was a real shift in the way that the far right organizes um, away from wanting to build a mass movement and really towards believing that violence was the only way forward. Um, that mainstream politics wasn't going to be the way for them to achieve power. Um, and instead, what they wanted to do was upend the system completely and start over. Um, and so for a lot, on the, a lot of people on the far right, this meant fully embracing violent tactics. Um, and so what we've seen are the growth of groups like the Adam Waffen Division or the base that organize in kind of clandestine terror cells um, that are focused on that goal of, of upending and eroding the system itself. Um, and now I think that idea, um, you know, as their mantra goes, there is no political solution. This idea has taken a hold in the larger far right towards the end of Trump's presidency. And I think what we're seeing now is that there are a lot of people who are, you know, don't believe in democracy necessarily. Um, and, and want to purge the system as it exists now and really start over. Um, and I think that's kind of the root of the insurrection that we saw on January 6th. To what degree has this kind of extremism and language uh, migrated into mainstream politics, particularly in the Republican Party? I think it's migrated to a very concerning level into the Republican Party. Um, you know, ideas that were once very much on the fringes, you know, as a person who's been studying this for a long time, um, you know, ideas that were really only on fringe websites um, contained within kind of white nationalist online spaces are now really normalized um, and have brought, been brought into the Republican Party. Um, you know, I think Right now, what we're seeing is a lot of polarization in this country, and um, that's been with us for a long time. But I think there's another story where one party is becoming really radicalized. Um, and, you know, the Republicans are, in many cases, openly embracing extremists or simply ignoring extremists with their, within their own ranks in the hopes that they will disappear. Um, and I, I very highly doubt that that is going to be the case. Um, I think this is going to continue to fester within the party unless they take, you know, really extreme measures to try and, um, you know, bring in what's what's been started here. We heard uh, this week Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, lash out uh, at uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon follower, who's now a new Congress member. Um, and this was uh, notable because so few Republican leaders have said anything about her. So you just uh, talk for a minute about QAnon. Uh, what is it? Uh, would you call it a hate group? 
Um, we would not call it QAnon a hate group because it's more of an amorphous movement, um, but it's basically a, a broad-based conspiracy theory that there is a uh, you know, cabal within the government of um, child abusers and pedophiles, um, and that President Trump was going to eradicate um, this group of people from the government. Um, and, you know, it was really fueled entirely online. Um, and it's, it's really taken on a life of its own. Um, and it's become this just enormous conspiracy theory. And, and one of the main things that's really fueling people to get involved in kind of real life activism, um, you know, like we saw at the Capitol. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is particularly dangerous because you know, she's a QAnon supporter very openly. And in some ways, she's kind of a, a sentient Facebook conspiracy group herself. You know, she's taken all of these conspiracies that have been circulating for years and openly embraced them. And she really rode that into the White House. Um, you know, she is the embodiment of so much of this misinformation that's been floating around for years um, that is really slowly eroding the fabric of our democracy and, and causing people to turn against the government in a really dangerous way. There seems to be a merging of issues. Um, we're seeing the same characters pop up in the anti-shutdown protests, now anti-vax protests, and the you know far-right extremist groups. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role, you know, what the COVID pandemic has done to the landscape of hate groups and how it is and why it is that all of these issues have somehow come together in the far right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, COVID really changed the landscape of the far right. And, you know, I can tell you from the perspective of a researcher who's been working on this for a long time um, that I felt like my world got upended, um, not only because I was sitting in my living room all the time and you know my own sort of personal life had changed, but because the movement had become so much more active, so much more emboldened um, by the coronavirus pandemic um, and all the other political events that accompanied it. Um, you know, at first what we saw was people were coming out to reopen protests. Um, you know, the far right is in many ways at its core an anti-government movement um, and it is driven by conspiracy theories, you know, many of which say that the state is tyrannical. Um, and so anything that is seen as, you know, government regulation is immediately thought to be government overreach and sign, you know, a sign of tyrannical government. And so they want to push back immediately. Um, and so they organized really quickly um, around these reopen protests to, to push back. Um, and I think what happened is that you created even more kind of intense anti-government sentiment, um, especially at the state level. And that allowed them to create an issue that kind of galvanized all different parts of the far right. You know, not only the most extreme, but more run of the mill Trump supporters. Um, who felt frustrated by the role that the government was was taking, even though these were really kind of practical, um, you know, public safety and health measures that were being put into place. Um, but what we saw is that there were all these forums where you had all different parts of the far right kind of coming together um, to oppose either these regulations 
um, maybe to stand in opposition to Black Lives Matter protests um, later in the summer. And then later in the year, what we saw was everyone galvanized um, around these stop to steal efforts. You know, what, what really brought them together towards the end of the year was this belief, um, which, you know, Trump had spread that the election was stolen, that it was fraudulent, and that brought people together in these, these stop to steal rallies around the country, which, which then really culminated in what happened at the Capitol on the 6th. So let's put, let's talk about the Capitol uh, insurrection. Um, one of the questions is whether what we saw is part of a coordinated mass root movement of far-right groups, or these are just disparate hate groups that came together randomly because of their support for Trump. Um, maybe speak to that, but really just speak to what you saw on Jan uh, January 6th. Yeah, I think for a lot of us who have been studying this movement for a long time, um, we were obviously horrified as we were watching what was happening on the 6th, but I can't say I was surprised. Um, you know, this is something that they've talked about for a very long time. Um, you know, specifically in preparation for the 6th, if you were paying attention to anti-government or militia or far-right spaces online, um, they were talking, you know, about violence, um, about wanting to take the capital, um, about insurrection. They've been talking about the possibility of civil war for a very long time. Um, they talk regularly about wanting to assassinate law members, uh, lawmakers. Um, you know, so we know that this rhetoric isn't, isn't just words, you know, that they, these are things that they want to act on. Um, and we saw plots take place throughout the, the year. Um, and so I think this was a culmination of really a movement that became mobilized throughout the course of the year. Um, and this wasn't necessarily, though, a coordinated effort. Um, you know, it wasn't a number of well-organized hate groups that got together and decided to plan this event. Um, it was actually kind of the opposite of that. You know, this was a, a sign that this is really a mass movement um, of far-right militants who are willing to take real-world action to pursue their political goals. Um, and in this case, it was to upend the results of the 2020 election. Um, and so I think this speaks to kind of the, the broader trends that we've seen where people aren't necessarily participating in organized hate groups. They're part of a more diffuse extremist movement. What are, um, you know, it's easy for people in New England to think that this is a Southern problem or this hate groups are something that happens in other places. But on your new uh, hate map, where you indicate groups in every single state. Uh, New England has 30 different hate groups on your hate map, and Vermont has one. Um, and if we add in New York, New York alone has 37 hate groups. Um, what is the state of hate in the Northeast? You know, the Northeast doesn't look all that different from other parts of the country. Um, you know, this isn't just a problem of the South. Um, it's it's not just a problem of places that, you know, what we see is places like Florida, you know, have a lot of hate groups, but they have a really high population, um, things like that. 
But the, the spread of hate groups that we see in places like the Northeast um, really mirror kind of everywhere else in the country. Um, so, you know, just looking at kind of the white nationalist movement and the neo-Nazi movement, the kind of groups that we're seeing um, are everything from groups like Patriot Front, um, which is active in Vermont. Um, and this is a group that is openly fascist um, and relies really heavily on propaganda. And that means everything from flyering to you know, demonstrations and marches. And actually they marched in, in DC last week. Um, this is a group that is particularly regimented and really wants to create a kind of spectacle um, as a performative show of strength. Um, you know, but there are other groups that are more overtly focused on violence, um, groups like the base and the Adam Waffen division um, that are organized into these clandestine terror cells that openly advocate for violence. Um, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of groups that are operating throughout the region. What do you think that the Biden administration needs to do to gain some control over the role of hate groups? Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of things that the administration can do. Um, you know, one, I think, is create some accountability. Um, so, you know, discipline and censure the senators who supported the insurrection and the Stop the Steal protests. Um, another thing we'd like to see is, you know, we know that law enforcement plays an important role here. Um, you know, and that we want the FBI and DHS to be prioritizing white supremacist domestic terrorism, but that, you know, law enforcement can't be our only tool. We have many others, and I think we need to start relying on them. Um, and that involves things like education. So, you know, what we'd like to see is a shift away from punishment models, um, from putting all of our effort into things like DHS and enhancing the surveillance state and instead invest in the Department of Education, um, explore what kind of programs we can create to stop radicalization before it happens. Um, and you know what we would really like to see uh, is things like the military taking this problem seriously. Um, what happened at the Capitol on the 6th, I think made really clear to people just how pressing the problem of extremism in the military is. Um, you know, there were many, many people who were either veterans or active duty who were involved that day. Um, and it points to a major problem where the military has failed to take this problem seriously. You know, they have regulations in place that ban people from participating in hate groups, but they're clearly not well enforced. Um, there need to be better screening procedures. You know, we need um, better regulations in place and we need to enforce the ones that we already have. Um, you know, but that's, that's just a few things that I think that there's, there's a lot, hopefully, that they will begin to look at. Many people may have family members or friends who are kind of fascinated with right-wing politics. What are the warning signs in your mind that somebody's uh, fascination has crossed a line to actually getting drawn in to be part of these hate groups? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the problem is, is really pressing now, I think, because, you know, not only the political atmosphere, but because we're staying home so much and we're looking at our computers so frequently and people can easily become immersed in online communities. And so, I think a lot of the signs are 
people beginning to kind of give credence to some conspiracy theories. Um, that's, I think, one of the first warning signs or looking for people to blame their grievances on. Um, you know, are they blaming them on immigrants, um, on people of color? Um, you know, these are kind of the, the things that hate groups use to draw people in. Hmm. Um, finally, in the post-capital uh, insurrection world, what do you worry about most? I think my biggest worry is that, you know, what we're seeing right now is the growth of a mass social movement that is openly anti-democratic. Um, you know, that this is something that is no longer contained to the fringes. Um, and we can't really call it fringe anymore. You know, when so many of these ideas and conspiracy theories have um, moved within the core of the Republican Party. Um, and the Republican Party doesn't seem particularly keen on um, trying to eject them. And, you know, I think that this, this sort of anti-democratic block that we're seeing emerge is something that we're going to have to contend with for a very long time. It's not going to go away just because we have a new president. Um, and so I think we need to be more focused than ever um, on finding solutions. Well, Cassie Miller, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Cassie Miller is a senior research analyst with the Southern Poverty Law Center.